Welcome to Through the Ringer. I'm your host, Tate Frazier. And today we got two guys from the Ringer universe. First up, we got Danny Kelly from the Ringer Fantasy Football Show. He's going to give us all the do's and don'ts of fantasy football this year. Then we're going to have our guy, John Jastrzemski, a.k.a. J.J. Bombs, come on, talk about the Mets, talk about the MLB trade deadline, the Yankees, and, of course, all the Aaron Rodgers drama ahead in New York City. Again, we got a jam-packed show. Let's get to it right now. All right, joining us now on Through the Ringer, you know him. He's been on the show before. In fact, last time he was here in sunny Los Angeles, he is the great Danny Kelly from the Ringer Fantasy Football Show. Danny Kelly, how you doing, man? I'm doing excellent, man. The, uh, the season is just around the corner, so looking forward to that, getting geared up and ramped up for that. Yeah, we got, uh, we got a lot to talk about uh, in the world of NFL and uh, a lot of topics. And obviously, a lot of people want to know about fantasy football because drafts yeah. are right around the corner. They try to find their experts. And uh, I went to the ringer.com and uh, I saw this beautiful uh, fantasy football draft guide uh, that we have mm-hmm. here. And uh, you learn a lot from this. I needed this a long time ago, back when Bill Simmons asked me <laughs> to help him with his fantasy football and give him all the stats and things he needed. But right now, it's right in your hand. So if you go to the ringer.com, you can find this. And I wanted to start with the number one guy on the board because I think it is fascinating. Number one on the big board of all players in fantasy football, it's Justin Jefferson, yeah. a wide receiver for the Minnesota Vikings. So let's start there. Why is Justin Jefferson the best bet in fantasy football this year? To me, he's just a combination of a sure thing. I mean, as long as he's healthy, which, you know, receivers, generally speaking, are more healthy than running backs. They take less of a beating throughout the season. So, you know, the high floor, plus he's got a really high ceiling. The best best receiver probably in the game. I mean, route running, hands, uh, run after catch. He has basically everything you asked for at that position. Um, volume, and and we think in this offense that he's going to get a ton of volume. He's going to continue to be the focal point of the Vikings offense. And so... I think it's just the combination of he's still an ascending player. He's got a high floor and a really high ceiling. To me, you know, that kind of makes him the number one player. You could quibble. Jamar Chase, also very good, obviously. Uh, but Justin Jefferson's just done it a little bit longer. Yeah, and if you look at the top five guys uh, that you guys have uh, drafted here, and shout out to Danny uh, Danny Heifetz, obviously, and shout out to Craig Horlbeck, who are you guys all, the three of you kind of helped put this ga- draft guide together. But the top five guys, we've got three receivers, we've got two running backs, uh, number two on the board, Jamar Chase, then we have uh, McCaffrey, then Eckler, and then uh, Cooper Cup there. In general, of those top five guys, which one do you think uh, you're, you're the least sure about as we get into the season? <laughs> obviously, injury Injury always comes into play, but what guy are you right. worried about of that top five? I mean, I think it's, it's silly to say probably because Chris McCaffrey's just been so solid and so spectacular in fantasy over the years. But just the Kyle Shanahan factor with Chris McCaffrey makes me a little bit nervous. Just the fact yeah, that he right. was willing last year, he's willing to use uh, Elijah Mitchell, the backup running back there quite a bit when both of those two guys were healthy. And so while McCaffrey still has the elite, elite ceiling, the utilization, just him in the passing game. He's just so good. All those combinations make him a potential superstar in fantasy. Really, just to me, the main slight worry, if we're going to be quibbling, again, this is a top five player, but if we're going to be quibbling, it's just <laughs> what is Shanahan going to do? Is he going to be giving Elijah Mitchell too many carries? And is that going to really just be the thorn in our side all season? Um, because when, like, like I said last year, when those two were both healthy, you know, there was a pretty healthy rotation between the two. And, and you know, honestly, from a team point of view, it makes a lot of sense for them to do that. So, Going into this year, that's kind of the main worry with McCaffrey. 
Yeah, and uh, you know, I'm talking about the negative side here to start, just because there's always concerns, <laughs> right, that happen with fantasy football. You we buy high, and then things go wrong, and then we uh, you try to you know go back and retrace our steps to figure out what went wrong. Uh, one of the pods that I like that you guys did this off season was um, the ten players that were not drafting in fantasy football. Well, <laughs> of those ten players that you're not going to draft, you guys, the three of you guys, kind of put this together. What is your guy that you're like? I stay far away from him. Maybe it's something personal that happened, or just like the production that you expect this year. All right, so one guy that kind of comes to mind on this one is Brees Hall, running back for the Jets. Just to me, his price, he's we got him ranked 26th overall right now. So like obviously you're going to have to take him pretty early in drafts. To me there's just too many question marks around number 1 is health, number 2 what this Jets offense is going to look like, and number 3, you know, what's going to happen with Dalvin Cook? Are they going to sign him? Who knows what's the what's his usage going to be? What's his role going to be? They have a couple other good running backs on this team too um, that I think that they want to rotate. And so, you know, again, it's to me a, a question mark of volume. Um, he's also coming off an ACL tear, which is is a little bit worrisome too. And so, to me, Brees Hall, even though I think he's a very good player, he's just yeah, he's got too many red flags in my mind to me pulling the trigger on that on that one too early. So, yeah, to me, he's a little bit worrisome. Yeah, and you worry about the idea that, you know, Salah, I saw him talking about Aaron Rodgers the other day and how when you watch him throw the football, he, he almost, it was like romantic the way that he was talking about it. And sometimes <laughs> I think you may right. you may fall in love with the passing game when you have someone with the talent of Aaron Rodgers. But you also threw yeah. out a nice wrinkle, which is another player. I wouldn't call him a sleeper, but I think if he does get signed, he's going to shock people with how productive he is. And that's Dalvin Cook. He's mm -hmm. obviously trying to figure out his market. He said the Jets have interest. Aaron Rodgers knows him well from the N NFC North days together, um, playing against each other. So if Dalvin Cook does end up, let's say, with the Jets, is he one of those guys like I said, I wouldn't say you deem him a sleeper, but he right. is one of those guys that could be highly productive uh, that gets signed late. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's an explosive play guy, generally speaking, throughout his whole career. He's good in the passing game. You know, he's a three down back. And so if he signs with the Jets, like all bets are off as to what type of rotation they're going to have. I mean, we've, we've got Brees Hall, uh, Bam Knight, who came on strong last year. Uh, you know, there's a couple other guys in this roster that can carry the ball. And so to me, this is a, is a tough rotation, but I think Dalvin Cook, if they do sign him, he's going to get a lot of volume. And so, mm. um, you know, he's the type of guy that you could, you could grab a little bit later. I'd almost rather grab him a little later in the draft than, than reach on, on Brees Hall that early. So, um, that's going to complicate things for sure. Yeah, speaking of complicating things, there's a lot of people that, you know, are the the novice fan of fantasy football. They come into it and they say to themselves, what's the most important position in football? Ah, quarterback. Let me get a quarterback <laughs> early. I think this is the the fallacy that happens, you know, when you see people do their drafts that aren't as locked in. But I was looking at the big board. The first quarterback that you guys have on the board is Jalen Hurts. Obviously, Jalen Hurts mm -hmm. had a great year with the Eagles, goes to the Super Bowl. He's a dual threat, can run the ball, throw the ball. There's reasons why he's one of those guys. But what else stands out to you? Why do you think Jalen Hurts is a sure thing uh, at the quarterback position? Uh, offensive line there is very strong. The scheme is perfectly suited to him. He has two number one receivers. I mean, I think Devontae Smith, you know, he's kind of quietly a number one type receiver. If, if A.J. Brown wasn't there, he'd be considered one. So, um, you know, it's a combination of usage, the way that they utilize him around the goal line. I mean, he's gotten double-digit rushing touchdowns the last two seasons, and so that is, like, completely unheard of from the quarterback position. There's no reason that they would go away from that in the red zone. It just creates, you know, basically just makes the defense wrong on every play, the fact that he can keep the ball and carry it into the end zone. And so, yeah, to me, he just has the upside. He's, a, he's an ascending passer. He's gotten better every season that he's played as a passer. Uh, and then you add in his rushing ability, particularly in the red zone, his ability to score touchdowns 
you know, and that makes him truly fantasy gold. And, and we talk about this as the, it's called a Konami code. It's, it's basically a cheat code in fantasy. The fact that rushing yards and rushing touchdowns are worth more than passing yards and passing touchdowns in fantasy, generally speaking. And so, you know, he, he is essentially a cheat code. He's like having two different players in one roster spot. He's like having sort of a mid-range wide uh, running back two or three in in your quarterback spot. So he, he just does so much on the ground through the air and he's still getting better. You know, this is a good team around him. It just gives him an elite, elite ceiling. And so um, to me, he's kind of the the no doubt guy. Even if he regresses a little bit, he's still got that rushing ability. So, um, you know, he, he to me is a very safe pick. And he's, you know, he's going to be on a lot of teams that win leagues this year. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, when you talk about an elite guy who can run and pass, I immediately go to Lamar Jackson. Lamar Jackson yeah. gets his contract. He gets paid. Do we think this is a year where Lamar has a big fantasy year and he has, you know, puts up big numbers? Yeah, he's kind of one of my guys this season. I know that he, he's not, he's like you said, he's not, a, he's not a sleeper. Everybody knows who Lamar Jackson is, but the last couple of years, he hasn't really done, he hasn't lived up to, I think, expectations in terms of what he can do through the air and what he did in his MVP season in 2019. And so, you know, to me, there's a lot of things working in his favor this season. They're going to be uh, potentially changing the offense to a more up-tempo, higher-paced, you know, pass-heavy offense under new offensive right. coordinator Todd Monken. So that could be a huge deal. Spread things out a little bit more. And, and honestly, his weapons are better than they've ever been probably in his time in Baltimore. Um, they added Odell Beckham, who has gotten rave reviews in, in training camp. Honestly, I'd kind of like given up for given him up for dead, but he is back and, and apparently he's playing really well. Um, you know, so they've got some good weapons in, the, in this offense. And I, th- I just think there's a chance Maybe he's maybe he's not the favorite to be the number one quarterback. Certainly, he's not the favorite, um, but he has that in his bag. He could be the number one quarterback in all of fantasy football. He could be the guy that wins a lot of people their leagues. Um, and you know, again, going back to 2019, he led the NFL in passing touchdowns and he rushed for over a thousand yards. There's very few guys in the NFL that can do that. So Lamar is one of them, and I, I do think he's going to have a big year this year. And I talked to a few uh, Ravens people in my life, and they uh, they all reached out and said this is th- the reason why Lamar wasn't a hundred percent in because he felt like the organization wasn't a hundred percent in. So now that that's all kind of shored up, who right. knows? Hopefully, we see like a, a full ceiling of what we expect to see from Lamar Jackson. That's a good one. I wanted to ask you about sleeper quarterbacks as well. Again, again quarterbacks yeah. aren't the most important position, but um, are there some guys that will be starters? Like I, I know our, our producer here, Kyle Crichton, he loves Jimmy G, uh, maybe a Sam Howell <laughs> with the Commanders. Is there anyone that stands yeah. out to you that's like a sleeper quarterback that could have a big year? I mean, Sam Howell is a great one. He's he's a deep sleeper. Um, it sounds like he's been playing really well at training camp for right. them. Um, you know, obviously there's there's good vibes around the commanders right now. You know, they got a, this is another team with a lot of good skill players, Terry McLaurin. Um, you know, they they just drafted Jahan Dotson last year. He kind of came on strong. So they've got some good weapons in the passing game. And and Sam Howell, if you go back to his college tape, I mean, he was either chucking it deep or running. And that's exactly what you want in fantasy. You don't want a dink and dunk guy. You want a guy who's gonna get big plays and run the ball 
And he's kind of got like a, uh, I, I, I comped him as a, as a runner to like Kyle Juszczyk. He's got like a fullback's body. He's just kind of a thick, sturdy guy. And so he can kind of run the ball a little bit. He's not, he's not as athletic as, as Jalen Hurts or Lamar Jackson, certainly. But, you know, he can get around. He, he rushed a bunch of times in college. And I think he has that upside. So he, to me, is a very good sleeper. Uh, the other guy I would throw out here, and I don't know if he's a sleeper, but Anthony Richardson. I mean, that guy mm. could absolutely rush for a thousand yards. And he could be, and, I, and I'll say this, he could be absolutely terrible as a passer this year. And it might not matter in fantasy because he's going to be, you know, as long as they're sticking with him and starting him uh, throughout the season, which I think that they will, he's going to be running the football a lot. It's going to be an offense that ostensibly, you know, put him on the quote unquote Jalen Hurts plan where you're you're simplifying rates for him in the passing game and then letting him do his thing with, with his legs. And, you know, especially in the red zone, we could see a Cam Newton-esque type season where he's scoring double digit touchdowns. Of course, this is not like anything that is a given. And that's why he's being drafted quite a bit later than any of these other elite quarterbacks. But I think, again, he has that capability because of that running cheat code in fantasy um, to be a huge surprise. Just look at what Justin Fields did last year down the stretch. I mean, he was, I think, in the second half of the season, he was the number two quarterback. And, and so, you know, you just that running ability is so, so valuable in fantasy. And I think Anthony Richardson could be that guy this year, even if he honestly looks like a, as a, like a rookie as a passer, like it doesn't matter. Because he can run. Yeah, fi- so yeah, F- Fields is a good call too, as well as someone that can be that dual yeah. threat. Um, he's someone that can put up some big points. You mentioned the Colts, so I have to talk about that because you know there's obviously <laughs> the Anthony Richardson fun part of the conversation, and then there's the Jonathan Taylor part of the right. con- conversation where he is um, obviously upset about the contract. Jim Ursay came out, made these comments. It was basically like, when I'm gone and when Jonathan Taylor's gone, the <laughs> NFL will survive. It was a very strange kind Nihilistic. of like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Very, very odd quote to put out there. Um, seems like they're on opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to trying to find a resolution there. But yeah, he's a yeah. guy that's top 15 on the big board. So how do we parse through drafting him that high if we don't think he's going to play? Yeah, I mean, in, in full disclosure, we had this ranking set before this news happened. So it, it's right, one of those right, things right. where like, do we need to move him down significantly at this point? I think right now we're more in just kind of wait and see mode. I'm still pretty confident that he will end up playing just because you know, the, the, he, he, Jonathan Taylor does not have a lot of leverage in this situation. He could decide not to play, sure. Um, but, you know, the Colts could really start to play hardball. And it sounds like they're already trying to play hardball with him. And so, you know, this is maybe turning into a situation where he gets traded. We just don't know. So for now, I think I'm betting on Jonathan Taylor's talent. But there, there are a lot of question marks going into the season, obviously, with him just because now he could hold out. You know, there's some sort of there's some reports about him having a back injury, which we haven't really confirmed yet. You know, so I think it to me, this is just kind of a wait and see situation that could get a little bit uglier before it gets better. Um, but, you know, ty- uh, you know, as we get closer to the season, things are going to be clarified. And I think then we'll kind of figure out where we're going to draft him. But, um, you know, it, looking at it, it's, it's hard to project him to be like a top three, top two guy, because not only, you know, are there there's question marks about what he's going to what who he's going to be playing for. It, there's a lot of question marks about like how much volume he's going to get, whether Anthony Richardson is going to vulture some of his carries in the red zone, you know, how involved he'll be in the passing game. So I think, you know, there's enough question marks around Jonathan Taylor to kind of like push him down a a little bit from where we got him. But like, you just probably don't want to have him. You don't want to be taking him too early at this point just because so many question marks. 
Yeah, the problem is like you like if you're the novice fan, you haven't kept up with the drama. You're saying to yourself, well, he had a great year last year. He's probably going to get the touches that you expect. He's RB6 on the board overall for you guys. Um, and like you said, this was last updated July 27th. So, and then Jonathan Taylor came out and tweeted basically he's never had a back problem right. and that any reports <laughs> that say he has a back problem is a lie, which goes back to the, you know, the conversation with the ownership and with him as a player. So, yeah. a lot of drama there to be sifted through. So, we'll we'll, we'll keep an eye on what's happening with Jonathan Taylor. One last disgruntled star I wanted to ask you about because I saw his yeah. press conference today, Stefan Diggs. Stefan Diggs is uber talented. Um, you know, we saw him with Minnesota, how that all kind of fell out, and then he ends up getting traded to Buffalo. He and Josh Allen have had a great rapport until this offseason. There were some comments back and forth. Then he was asked about his situation today, and he said they're trying to make me the scapegoat for this team, which is a very interesting comment. He's hmm. number 13 on the board. Should we also have some concern? about where Diggs is right now and if he's mentally checked in. Yeah, I mean, this is the type of stuff that it makes it so hard to make rankings, honestly, just because there's I know, you know, personalities. I'm, I'm trying to give some nuance to the rankings because like, <laughs> it is crazy, you know what I mean, to yeah. keep up with all the drama. I just think if you look at the if, if you look at the facts, what we know, because obviously there's a lot of personality quirks that are happening here, you know, and, and that is kind of in the back of your mind. But at the end of the day, like, he's a very, he's an elite receiver, great route runner, you know, he, he does everything well as a receiving uh, player, uh, but he's also in this team with Josh Allen, who is one of the best quarterbacks. This is one of the best offenses in the NFL. They're going to score a ton of points. They're going to run a ton of plays. From a fantasy point of view, you want a piece of this offense, and he is going to be the number one, you know, the number one target in this offense, clearly. And so, um, you know, you have to weigh everything. You have to weigh some of the potential concerns with, with personality. I, th I think at the end of the day, though, I'm not too worried about him not playing. You know, just because this is still a team that has Super Bowl potential. Um, you know, there's still a team that is going to score a ton of points. And, and and Josh Allen is still the one that's throwing him passes. And so, you know, at the end of the day, those those three reasons are are stronger to me to take Stefan Diggs where he's being drafted uh, than to fade him there. Because I just think he's he's too good and this is too good of an offense. One last thing, Danny, before I let you go. I want to ask you about the Seattle Seahawks. You're right there. You know yeah. what's happening with Seattle. Uh, they flew under the radar last year. Geno Smith, there was a lot of conversations about how great he looked in training camp. People kind of rolled their eyes, and he goes out and he has a great season. <laughs> yeah. um, do we expect the Seahawks to have a, uh, another year where Geno Smith is kind of like the, I kind of called him the Meg Ryan of the NFL. He was America's sweetheart last year. But, uh, <laughs> how, did, how did you feel about, how do you feel about the Seahawks, Seahawks team this year going into the season? Oh, so it's not just us in Seattle. That's good to know. Um, yeah, he, <laughs> We love him here. Obviously, I think there's a lot of confidence from from you know his teammates. He he was always the guy there. In fact, if you go back to last year, the Seahawks were definitely trying to make Drew Locke a thing. They were trying to make him their starter. Right. Um, and then they ended up kind of signing uh, Geno Smith late in the season. Geno Smith had been with the team for a few years, so clearly the Seahawks didn't know what they had yet either. And so you know, I think it just kind of all worked out. He came in. He was very good fit for this offense for what the Seahawks want to do under Shane Waldron. It's kind of a Rams-style offense where, um, you know, in contrast to Russell Wilson, he's like going through his reads. He's looking over the middle of the field. He's hitting his his guys. Instead of like trying to make too much happen out of structure, he's just kind of running the offense. He's efficient. Um, and, the, and if you look at, you know, where he is now compared to last year, he's gotten a full offseason of work, which is huge. Because going into last year, he didn't even know if he's going to be started. He didn't even know if he's going to be a Seahawk for half the offseason. <laughs> right, exactly. So, you know, he's had this whole offseason to work on, on you know, mastering the offense, which is, of course, you know, going to be important. They just drafted Jackson Smith and Jigba, who has already, like, put up a couple of highlight real catches in, in training camp. And, and based on who I, everyone I've talked to, 
you know, that's been at Seahawks camp, like he's looked amazing. So I think he's a guy that is going to keep them on the field on third downs, like be able to convert those third downs and maybe at a higher rate than they did last year, you know, extend drives, score more points. I think it all is going to work together. I think that's why they got him primarily, obviously long-term, like a replacement for Tyler Lockett. But in the short term, you know, he's a guy that can get open over the middle of the field, like, you know, on a, you know, on command and is going to give them so much more options on third down when they really need it. So to me, that's a big part of it. Um, yeah, I think the, the Seahawks offense has a lot of potential. Geno Smith, I think is, you know, he'll, he'll make a turnover here and there. He's not perfect, but, um, like I said, his ability to just kind of run the offense efficiently is huge for the Seahawks and in, in what they want to do. So, you know, I, I'm pretty bullish on the Seahawks offense this year. Yeah, I think that he's just like a savvy vet and uh, he always had the arm talent to be a great quarterback. He just yeah. kind of needed to get there um, and mature into it. And I think Gino has done that. I'm excited about that. I wanted to flag for you. I will be in Seattle for the Panthers-Seahawks game uh, this year. Ooh, so um, nice. that Sunday, I, I will be there. My uh, my current girlfriend is a, is a Seattle person. She lives she's from Seattle. So oh, cool. uh, yeah. I'm going to be there. I'll see Bryce Young versus Gino Smith in person. So hopefully we can uh, we can link up and talk some football. Um, Danny Kelly, appreciate you Absolutely. Coming on the show, sharing the insights on fantasy football. We'll have you back. We'll try to, uh, you know, parse through what's going to happen here in the world of fantasy football. And also wanted to shout out, you guys will be here on FanDuel TV, right? The Ringer Fantasy Football Show is coming to FanDuel TV. That's correct? Yeah, absolutely. Can't wait to do that. Uh, we're going to have, I believe, one show a week. So look for that coming nice. very soon. Yeah. There you go. Those three guys will be on FanDuel TV with us. We're excited to have them on. Danny Kelly, thanks so much for coming on Through the Ringer, man. Absolutely. Thanks, man. All right, joining us again on Through the Ringer. You know him well. He is also here on FanDuel TV once a week. He is the great John Jastrzemski. John, great to see you, man. Tate, the pleasure's all mine. We got a lot cooking over the next couple of days. Uh, we got that buildup, the the countdown, the anticipation of football is here. But uh, a lot of news regarding the baseball teams <laughs> in town. It's not necessarily positive, but we're here for it, dude. We're here for it. Yeah. It's always, uh, I bring you on here and I, I apologize. I, I kind of just throw you into the fire and say, tell me about what's happening with the Mets. Tell me about the Yankees. Tell me about this. Tell me about that. We'll talk about the Jets and the Browns because we got the Hall of Fame game this Thursday, which is uh, insane to think about. But that is real. That is happening. But we'll start with the Mets because the Mets, in case you missed it, folks, they are the most expensive team in MLB history. Uh, about a half a billion dollars was you know, dedicated to this team. They were trying to build a championship team. They were trying to conjure up the magic of 1986. They kept bringing up um, the, the comparisons between them and 1986. Uh, Steve Cohen, this did not go as planned. And Max Scherzer being traded was kind of the, the moment where we all saw uh, this was the end. So let's talk about the Scherzer deal. Um, they trade him to the Texas Rangers. He had um, a decision to make if he's going to accept the trade. Um, he decided to accept the trade. So what is the fallout with the Mets right now? What is the reaction um, around Shea Stadium and beyond in the city right now about this team? Well, I think there's a lot of disappointment, Tate. You know, you mentioned the worst team that money can buy. That's in reality what the Mets were <laughs> this year. They made the playoffs a year ago, but they had the division lead for like 85 to 90% of the season. The Atlanta Braves took it from them the final weekend of last year's regular season. The Padres 
took it to him in the best of three wild card. And to be perfectly honest, I don't think the Mets ever recovered from that. I, I, I really don't. I think there's something to be said for that sort of hangover that kind of was around this team all year. And I, I wish I could pinpointate one individual reason for why the Mets are sellers and why the Mets ended up being in the predicament that they're in. But it, it's a lot of stuff, whether it's the rotation not going deep enough in the ball games, whether it's losing Edwin Diaz, who was the best closer in baseball in the WBC and how much that killed them. Uh, you look at their lineup, it hasn't been as good, hasn't been as productive. Guys have not performed in many ways to the back of their baseball cards and they haven't been as clean, they haven't been as crisp and as fundamentally sound. So that, in a nutshell, is a variety of different reasons how you go from being a 100-win team, a legit championship contender, to the team that there are, you know, in 2023 where they were well under 500, even with them winning four or five games over the 500 mark in the month of July, they're still five, six under going into the trade deadline. And they made the right call and saying, hey, guess what? It's now time to reboot. It's time to reset. We're not a championship contender, and we got to be in sell mode. Yeah, I mean, the Mets went 101-61 and last season. That was only eclipsed one time in franchise history, and that was, of course, 1986. And right now, they're 17 games behind the Braves, which says something. And like I talked about their payroll... Three hundred seventy-seven million, and that's plus the plus one hundred five million in luxury tax. So, I mean, like I said, half a billion dollars is what they spent on this team. And you know, Max Scherzer is one of those guys with Justin Verlander. They were supposed to be the duo that comes in that saves the day. I mean, he's averaging uh, four runs a game per start for Scherzer. Even though the record is okay, the runs allowed has been insane at a higher clip than ever for him in his career. What do we do now? How do we deal with Verlander? Now that Scherzer is gone, he's going to Texas. Texas is trying to make a run for a title. We can talk about them a little bit with the the MLB futures, but what do we what happens with Verlander? He's still under contract. He's still with the Mets. So this is not going to be a full-fledged teardown tape because if you look at their lineup for next year, they got a lot of high-priced veterans that are still under contract that are not going anywhere. They're not Let's put it this way, going down the road of the Baltimore Orioles, the Chicago Cubs from a couple of years ago, where they're going to just flat out stink for three years, picking the top five and kind of rebuild their organization that way. It's going to be far more rebuilding on the fly. So when it comes to being competitive for 2024, I still think their best chance to be competitive for next year is with Justin Verlander as a part of the team because... Yeah, the Mets have financial flexibility. Yes, Steve Cohen can go and spend crazy amounts of money, but you don't want to be in a position where you got to go next winter and get yourself three, four starting pitchers in free agency. They don't want to do that. They have Kodai Senga. They have a mid-tier guy in Jose Quintana. The sense I get is that Verlander will be back here. Unless Verlander says to them, I want out. Or it's a situation where the Mets just get totally blown away, where it's like, wow, how do we not make this trade and set up our franchise and our future that way? I don't think they'll get that sort of trade because it's complicated with the money. You just saw them in order to go and get a top 50 prospect, they had to eat like 30-something million dollars in Max Scherzer's salary. And you throw in the fact that they want to win next year. I think at the end of the day here, Justin Verlander will be back. We know wifey wants to be back with all the, you know, <laughs> financial and 
lucrative opportunities that are presented her way with the idea of being in New York. I think opening day next year, whether it's at City Field or somewhere else, I don't know the schedule off the top of my head. I think Justin Verlander will be a Met. Yeah, and Justin Verlander, 40 years old. So that's always a you know a, a conversation to be had about how long and how long is that runway for him. But also, we've seen pitchers like Nolan Ryan, like these these high level type aces. You know what I mean? That can do this. That can make it work. And then Lindor, I mean, he's 30 and he's signed through 2031. So at least like the two guys, you know, of the big three, they had three guys that were signed for 119 million dollars, right? Between Lindor and Verlander and Scherzer. Now one of those guys is out. Funny enough, he's kind of taken over for DeGrom who, you know, got hurt, had to get Tommy John surgery, so he's stepping in for a former Met there in Texas. And now you got these two guys that are on the payroll, and maybe there's a world in which I, I saw Cohen talking a lot about trying to grow that farm system, trying to build out that farm system with the Mets, and maybe Maybe this is a, a world in which they might be the oldest team in baseball or what they were before, but maybe they're trying to pivot to be younger and try to mirror what the Dodgers have done a little bit. That, that's what it feels like. And funny enough, Cohen almost bought the Dodgers, so it would make sense why he's trying to build that same way, right? It's the right model to have. I mean, Tate, look, in a perfect world, you have high-priced superstar players, but we know this about guys who are free agents in baseball. They get old and they get old fast, so... If you're right. trying to build a team through free agency and free agency alone, it will not work in Major League Baseball. You might catch a little lightning in a bottle. You might have a really good year. You might even go and win a championship. But if you're looking for sustained success, it's the idea of being able to develop guys, grow guys, keep the guys that are worthwhile, and gradually shift guys in and out depending on how you want your team to look. The Dodgers, even though they only have one World Series since 2013, think about the guys they've lost over the years and how they just seamlessly replace them. I mean, you give me the guy, whether it's Zach Ranke a long time ago, they lose Seager, they lose Justin Turner, but they go and find different pieces. And oh, by the way, they can still spend a ton of money because they can go and get Mookie Betts and they can go and get Freddie Freeman and they can flex, but develop at the same time. Yes, that is what the Mets are trying to do. Easier said than done. And you're learning here. You can't take a farm system, snap your finger, and think you're going to have instant success. It takes time <laughs> to grow and develop your scouting, your analytics, the technology with the Mets. For years, we're way behind the eight ball. Now they're trying to close that gap a little bit. But in the short term, you're seeing some pain. And accomplishments that guys have had before does not translate to direct results. And I feel like that was the big lesson that was maybe learned by the roster construction of this Mets team. It looked really good on paper. A lot of people got excited. They thought that they almost could be like a, a super team with this kind of rotation. But the accomplishments don't don't materialize into results. And now one of the oldest teams in baseball essentially is breaking up, uh, even though we mentioned Verlander and Lindor will be back. Um, and Lindor will be there for quite some time unless something crazy happens.
Speaking of crazy things that could happen, we do have the trade deadline. That is at 6 o'clock Tuesday today, um, August 1st. It was pushed back one day. Scherzer obviously was the big name going to the Rangers, but was there any other moves uh, that have happened or, or maybe you thought could happen? Uh, let's talk about the Yankees. What was the big idea for the Yankees as we get closer to the trade deadline? Was it strictly Otani or bust for the Yankees? And now that Otani, we're past that. The Angels are going to keep them. Are the Yankees pretty much out of the trade deadline at this point? I wouldn't necessarily say they're out, Tate, but the problem they're going to run into, there's not a move that could be made in my estimation, that changes the feel and the landscape of the team because of the underperformance that you've had up and down the lineup. Like, if John Carlos Stanton and Anthony Rizzo don't start hitting, it doesn't matter what the Yankees do. You know what I mean? Like, they weren't getting Otani. They weren't getting Juan Soto. And even a guy like Cody Bellinger, who's not going to get moved now by the Chicago Cubs, he's a good player. He would help the Yankees. Is Cody Bellinger transforming the Yankee lineup into something that is drastically different? The answer to that question is no. So I don't believe in this Yankee team at all. I don't believe in their lineup at all. It should look better in theory now that Aaron Judge is back. But take for what it's worth, if I were playing against the New York Yankees and the game is on the line and I'm an opposing manager, Aaron Judge is not getting anything to hit. Uh, I will let the <laughs> other right. guys... It's it's the Barry Bonds, like, we'll just put him on, put base, him on base and we'll, we'll deal with everybody put else. Him on base. Yeah. It's the same thing with Otani until Mike Trout comes back. You know, I, I heard Matt Chapman for the Blue Jays a couple of days ago. He was caught on a hot mic saying, how do we pitch to this guy? He's the only guy worth pitching to in the lineup. Yet the Yankees decided to pitch to him with the game on the line about a week and a half ago, but that is a story for a different day. <laughs> the issue I have with the Yankees is they can go and get a left fielder. They can go and add, a, you know, a decent, above replacement, above average type of player, maybe to play third base. Is that closing the gap between them and the top teams in the American League? From what I've seen this year, Tate, my money is on now. Yeah, and right now, if you look at the odds for the World Series, I mean, not to say that the Yankees are really in that conversation, but they're plus 3,500 to win the World Series, and and that kind of says where they are. They're kind of a, a middle-of-the-road team right now, and that's not what people you know, in the Bronx and the New York at large expect when they talk about the New York Yankees. They expect the Steinbrenner model of every single year we're competing to win the World Series, and right now they're not even close, right? I mean, that that's probably the best way to put it in a succinct fashion. It's like, the Yankees have to decide if they're going to try to be in that top tier again or if they're going to have to reset and reload and figure out what they look like in the future, right? Well, a year ago, they were in the American League Championship Series, but it had a very uneven right. season. They, for three months, Tate, and it was insulting that they put last year's team in the same sentence as the 1998 New York Yankees. Like, that makes my blood <laughs> boil because it's the greatest baseball team I've ever seen in my life. You'll never see anything right. like it again. Uh, 125 wins, won the World Series, whole deal. But they were on that sort of pace. So uh, there were the comparison articles. There were the talking points. We did it on New York, New York, and I thought it was lunacy. But why do I bring that up? After those three months of absurd baseball, the Yankees now, for the better part of a full 162 games, a full calendar year, they basically have been a 500 team. That That's yep. what their record, record indicates what they are. So the Yankees, to me, as an organization... They're delusional in what they perceive their team to be. Like, I even heard it on the ESPN Sunday Night Broadcast. Olney's doing a report. He's got good sources. He's obviously tight with the manager and guys on the Yankees. You know, they're proclaiming, hey, if we get in, we're going to make a big dent. We're dangerous. Well, 
Why, number one, are you dangerous? Because you haven't won anything in the last 13 years, and you can't hit, and you, there's no faith and confidence that you're going to be able to deliver in October. And number two, you got to get there. Yankees are three and a half games out of a playoff spot, and they got a tough schedule coming up. Why am I supposed to assume all of a sudden now they're going to snap their fingers and they're going to get there? So, yeah, there's a disconnect that's there with what the people within the organization perceive the team to be and what someone like myself perceives and the fan base, for that matter, perceives the team to be. Yeah, one example I can think of just when it comes to the trade deadline, I saw that the Marlins had interest in Glaber Torres, and then um, there was a report that came out that basically Cashman was asking for you know what the the Miami Marlins considered a ridiculous price for Torres. But that goes back to what you're talking about the value of what they have versus the reality of what they have. I mean, and, and even so like Severino is one of those guys where I think in the building his value is at a higher level than maybe the outside value is. Like, how much can we parse through that as well with this Yankee? team where you know there are guys that they maybe could cut ties with and and try to get some value back that they're not really willing to make those moves right now because they're quote unquote in a win now mode that's an interesting one um Torres especially because I don't think the Yankees are going to resign him long term he's never right. you know he's never Tate lived up to the sort of billing that he had his first two years in the big leagues where people around the sport were basically putting him in the same sentence as Juan Soto and Ronald Acuna, which now you look back on it, it's absolutely absurd. It's comical to even think about. But he's an above-average player. The, the crazy thing for the Yankees is, if they want to win this year, and I've heard nothing that leads me to believe that they're going to be selling off guys come the trade deadline, the problem they run into, Tate, is that Gleyber Torres is probably their second-best offensive player outside of Aaron Judge. So if you're... Thinking about the idea of making the playoffs, I don't know how you're a better team by trading away one of the only offensive pieces you have that has amounted to anything this year. So uh, I know they tried trading Gleyber Torres last year with the Marlins for Pablo Lopez. It didn't end up working out. I don't think the Yankees love Torres, and I wouldn't be surprised if he got traded and moved in the offseason. I just think if they're trying to make the playoffs, how are they a better team moving Glaber Torres? That's what I want to know. Yeah, and I feel like, uh, you know, it's kind of just they're, they're at a crossroads right now as a franchise figuring out what it's going to look like. And um, you know this, if, if we get to October and the Yankees aren't in the conversation, then the Yankees fans are going to have their own separate conversations about what the future looks like. There will be a lot of finger pointing, especially at the front office. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll we'll get to that when we have to get to that. But right now, there's obviously a bit of chaos going on with, with what the future of the Yankees look like. I have the World Series odds in front of me. I want to run through those with you. Uh, Brave are still the favorites at plus 300 the Dodgers at plus 450 the Rays at plus 650 Rangers plus 800 um, and the Astros at plus 850 and then there's a pretty precipitous drop from there so of those top teams that I just mentioned Astros Rangers Rays Dodgers Braves which team right now do you feel the best about going to win the World Series listen I'm going with the chalk in the National League I think the Atlanta Braves are the best team they are so dynamic Mm -hmm. they can beat you in so many different ways they're only going to get healthier from a pitching standpoint. Max Fried is coming back this week. I think Atlanta, who got denied last year by Philadelphia, and it just goes to show you, the best team in baseball does not always win because the Atlanta Braves right. were playing as well as anybody in the National League. They ran into a Philly team that won 15, 20 less games than them last year in a regular season, and Philadelphia beat them in four. Uh, but Tate, in the National League, I like Atlanta. In the American League, 
I think the Astros are still incredibly undervalued. That team knows mm-hmm. how to win. They know how to win in October. I think they'll look to maybe add to their team at the trade deadline, maybe adding another starting pitcher, but they're going to get two big bats and they're already back in your Don Alvarez and Jose Altuve who missed a lot of time. I mean, those are, those are monstrous, monstrous players. Your Don Alvarez to me, he's one of the best hitters in the American league. But if you're looking for more of a dark horse, and this I like to come on and we like to even go off the grain a little bit. I think the Baltimore <laughs> Orioles are spunky. I think the Baltimore Orioles, if they could somehow, some way, get a starting pitcher, that lineup is dynamic. They have a great back end of the bullpen with Cano and Bautista. I still think there's value in the little engine that could and those baby Baltimore Orioles maybe winning the American League. I would think long and hard about that. Yeah, I like that. Plus 1,700 to win the World Series, the Baltimore Orioles. And like you said, they're kind of a fun team. Um, they, they have a nice, like, jovial kind of youth feel to who they are as a franchise right now. And, uh, you know, the Orioles are someone to watch out for. Another team I wanted to flag, I think the Rangers. Uh, I know they made the trade there for Scherzer, but I like the middle of their infield. I like Seager a lot. They had two starters there in the middle of their infield in the All-Star game. And they've never won a World Series title. Um, which is kind of crazy when you think about the Rangers and the fact that they've kind of been around and prevalent for so long, but they've never won a World Series. And at plus 800, um, I don't know. I'm, I I look at the Rangers and I'm thinking to myself, maybe they're a team as well. So uh, I like that it's not a sure thing. The Braves look like the surest thing, but like you said, JJ, it's not always the best team in baseball that goes to win the World Series. It's kind of who's hot at the right time. And I think that there's uh, there's actually some value here for the World Series right now because people are still trying to jockey for position. And before we actually hit the trade deadline, it might be a good time to, uh, to put a bet in on a team that you might believe in, like the Baltimore Orioles or the Texas Rangers, or like you said, even the Houston Astros, who have been there before, have you know won a World Series, multiple World Series, and uh, we know how that goes as well. And I could get behind Texas. Um, the key for Texas, though, is Nathan Ovaldi going to be A-OK for October? Mm-hmm. Because you can forget about who wins the division, who's in the wild card. I, I do think that's overrated and overblown. Like, you get a series off, but if you're built for it, you'll succeed. That's just the way I see it. And Ovaldi... If you can have him with Scherzer, and they just added Jordan Montgomery, who I like a lot, former Yankee, former St. Louis Cardinal, to the other arms they have, then all of a sudden, I'm like, all right, Texas is cooking with something here. And Texas, another one of these teams, young. I I know Seager and Simeon have been around, but like you look at a bunch of the other guys in their lineup, uh, Jonah Heim and Garcia, like these are young dudes. And what they have, Tate, they have a Hall of Fame manager. And... I know a lot of the new age analytics folks, they try to devalue the major league baseball manager and I get it, right? Like it's not an NFL head coach. You're not like scheming and game planning the same way you would in the NFL if you're a coach. Like baseball's a little different. But I do think that if you look at certain teams, there can be a calming presence of having somebody who's been through the wars. He's not going to be phased by managing in a postseason scenario and knows how to win. The Texas Rangers... We're not doing a whole lot of winning last year before Bruce Bochy came in. A lot of these same guys are on the team. So I know they added Evaldi. I know they added some arms like Andrew Heaney. DeGrom didn't work out because he had Tommy John surgery. Bruce Bochy showing you, hey, a manager is maybe worth something in Major League Baseball because the team has kind of followed his lead. Yeah, and Bochy at one point with the Giants, I mean, it was like every even year they were going to win the World Series. Like 2014, when they had Madison Bumgarner, I mean, that, that was like the time where it was like, 
this team is destined to win. We just felt it felt inevitable at at a certain point. Um, Yeah, that's a great point there about having a good manager. Let's flip from baseball quickly talk about Aaron Rodgers because he is in New York City. Uh, there's a lot of conversation about Aaron Rodgers. He went at Sean Payton after Payton made his comments about Nathaniel Hackett. He kind of stuck his neck out. Uh, Joe Namath came out. He praised Aaron Rodgers for taking the pay cut. Um, again, Aaron Rodgers is going to take uh, a $35 million pay cut. He said it was important to him. Um, Joe Namath said it's a great exhibition of his character, uh, which leads me to ask you, JJ, when is the honeymoon period going to end with Aaron Rodgers in New York? You know what I mean? Because it's inevitable. We know how the New York media works. Uh, we love you. We love you. We love you. Wait a second. You lost this game. What is wrong with you? Let's start talking about that. Um, how long will this last and how impressed are you so far by Aaron Rodgers kind of, uh, you know, endearing himself to the city of New York and the New York media at large? I'm going to start there, Tate. He has handled this brilliantly. Whether it's going really to Nick games, Ranger games, going to the restaurants, going to Broadway shows, just being a part <laughs> of New York. Like there are certain guys who want no part of New York that are going to go hide in their little mansion, that don't want to be in a city, that don't want to be like hobnobbing and whatnot. Aaron Rodgers is right. like embracing the attention, the spotlight, and what comes with being a big time New York athlete. He was already a superstar before he ever got here. But, like, the idea that he has embraced New York, I think is terrific. So I give him a lot of credit on that, number one. As far as the honeymoon, though, Tate, you know this, man. They played poorly (laughs) against the Buffalo Bills in week one. And I already have some Met Jet fans in my life because that's a – it's not a given that if you're a Met fan, you're a Jet fan. Or if you're a Yankee fan, you're a Giant fan. But there are plenty of Met Jet fans. Like, that is a common bond and theme amongst the fan bases. And – the Met fan has a lot of PTSD after what just transpired with Max Scherzer. They're like, oh boy, I hope Aaron Rodgers is not Max Scherzer part two. But here's what Rodgers has going for him. He's got an axe to grind with the Packers. He's clearly yep. got a chip on his shoulder. He's got his buddy Nathaniel Hackett that he's looking out for. And he's Aaron Rodgers. He's not Zach Wilson. So as ticked off as some Jeff fans might be if he has a bad game and it's the NFL tape, odds are, That schedule, he's going to have a bad game in his first four. I'd be surprised if he doesn't. I think they'll look at the quarterback play and say, wow, we had Zach Wilson a year ago. It is nice having Aaron Rodgers throw us the football. And if you're winning games and you get the Jets into the playoffs, that's something they haven't done in over a decade. So bare minimum, Tate, if you're a Jeff fan, you better be talking about Aaron Rodgers taking you into January and playing games into January. It does feel like Aaron Rodgers is in kind of this period. That's why I call it the honeymoon period. But it's like he got, you know, divorced from the Packers. They said all this bad stuff about him. He said bad stuff about them. They had a very toxic relationship, it seemed, from the outside looking in. And then he goes to the Jets, and now he's doing everything that he was accused of not doing with the Packers. And I think that's the the beauty of the situation if you're a Jets fan is, one, he's trying to endear himself to you, but also he's trying to stick it to the Packers and say they were actually the problem. I'm actually a great guy. Um, look at all this great stuff that I do. I, I'm so media friendly. I'm willing to do this event. I'm willing to show face. I'm willing to be a good teammate. I want to hang out with the young guys. So like 
the axe to grind, I think, is is bigger than anything else that's in his mind. And that is good news for the New York Jets fans. Like the fact that he is not doing the one year, we'll see mercenary type deal. He's like, no, I'm committed. I want to be back. I want to be a New York Jet. The fact that that all of that is happening and he's kind of getting, you know, grinding, uh, you know, the, the Packers gears as they watch this. I think that is the beauty of all of it is that he has an actual enemy and it's not New York. It's not the New York media. It's the Green Bay Packers. And that's good news for the Jets. And that he's motivated. And that to me is the big difference between when Brett Favre came here in 2008 and yeah, what, yeah, 08, 2000, 09, yeah. yeah, 2008, uh, before he ended up going to Minnesota, Tate, he never wanted to come to the Jets. He wanted to go to the Vikings and immediately stick it to the Packers in the division, but the Packers were not going to trade him to Minnesota. Therefore, he had to do like a year hiatus with the Jets. Rodgers, on the other hand, I think maybe the idea of being in a small market like Green Bay, Wisconsin, and now having the bright lights and the attention and the tabloids and everything that New York brings to the table, <laughs> it has definitely reinvigorated him. So I, I think he's going to play well. I really do. Like people have asked me a lot, what do you think Aaron Rodgers is going to look like this year? If the Jet offensive line can hold up, which to me is far more the bigger if than Aaron Rodgers holding up, because I think they're kind of directly correlated in a way, that offensive line holds up. Aaron Rodgers is going to be A-OK for the Jets. He's going to put up numbers. He's going to perform well. Yeah, and the last time you saw the Jets play, their quarterback was Joe Flacco. So I think that Aaron Rodgers will look better than Flacco did in that last game, even though, hey, he threw for 140 yards. So that, that was good news for Flacco. Uh, one last thing, JJ, before I let you go. The Hall of Fame game is on Thursday. We got the New York Jets going to take on the Cleveland Browns. We got a line right here. The Browns are favored by three in this game. The over-under is at 34 First and foremost, are you going to watch this game? And second, what do you even try to watch in preseason anymore? Because it feels like we've gotten farther and farther away from actual football. You know, Tate, it's a great point. Um, I will not be wagering on this game. I can tell you that right now. I do not. <laughs> yeah, there are same. some of my colleagues that work with me over with the East Coast Bias crew that might be. Uh, I am not. I, I do not bet on preseason football. I'll be doing plenty of that once uh, that first Thursday, Detroit and Kansas City rolls around. Um, so that's number one. As far as yeah. what do I take from preseason, not much. You know what I take, Tate? <laughs> can, can everybody be in one piece? In, in all seriousness, yes. is the entire infrastructure of my team intact going into week one whenever they play? Because guys don't play as much. You're already hearing rumblings that Aaron Rodgers may not play at all in any of these preseason games, and I'm not particularly upset about it. So... For me to be a hypocrite on this and say that I'm going to have these grand takeaways when I see quarterback whoever going up against a bunch of third stringers, I'll find out when the game starts. So my biggest thing with preseason, it might be a cop-out answer, but that's fine. I'm giving you a cop-out answer. Health and durability. Got to be one piece. Yeah, just avoid it. Uh, avoid any in injuries at all costs, uh, especially for all the fantasy managers out there. That's what we're, we're all hoping for that. Um, and then we got Hard Knocks with the Jets. Will you be watching Hard Knocks with the Jets? Will you be breaking this down? Oh, in? I'm looking forward to it. Um, and yeah, they good. have a tough act to follow, Tate, because the last time the Jets were on Hard Knocks, I would argue it was the best season of Hard Knocks in the history of Hard Knocks. I would with agree. Rex Ryan and best. Antonio Cromartie. Cromartie and the Revis <laughs> yeah, stuff right. and Mark Sanchez. Like, that was a... Uh, very entertaining team. I don't know if this team is going to be nearly as entertaining. Uh, I think Robert Sala is a good dude. Uh, I don't think Robert Sala has the personality of Rex Ryan. But, uh, of course, man, as we do New York, New York, I'm sure it's going to 
give us plenty of content to talk about as we deal with the uh, the misery of the Yankees and the Mets, my dude. Yeah, I feel like Salah's first act should be promising and guaranteeing a Super Bowl and then just laughing about it. You know what I mean? That would be a nice or snack time. Uh, you know, he can tip- work snack time in there, too. Don't forget about that. <laughs> there you go. Or Rodgers can do like, remember Sanchez was just like catch- catching balls with like one hand on the sideline and everyone's like, this guy should be a receiver, not our quarterback. You know, maybe he tries to reenact that moment. That could be fun. Uh, JJ, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. Appreciate you. We'll check back in as we get closer to October, but appreciate you breaking down the Mets, the Yankees, and all things New York as always. You're the best and uh, we'll have you back on, man. You got to take it anytime, man.